Hello boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Shami Ambran and welcome to another episode of Nasi Lemak Podcast where it is my job to interview people from all different types and different field trying to understand how they think, how their views on certain topics and also their career journey. So my guest today is Premesh Chandran who is the CEO of Malaysia Kini. When I did research about Premesh, there's a lot of things about him that he achieved so much things. He won so many awards. He did so many things, Kini Academy, Kini TV, Malaysia Kini, and his media company. I think if I want to say all those things, right, it's going to take a while. So maybe Premesh can introduce briefly of what he's doing. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Premesh Chandran, CEO of Malaysia Kini. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm not sure what exactly to say about my background, but uh, <laughs> I've been running Malaysia Kini for now for about 21 years as CEO. Uh, and my partner is Stephen Gunn. He's the editor and I'm the CEO. As a CEO of Malaysia Kini, um, I try to avoid working on the journalism part of it that's under the editors, but I run the business. I run the technology, the advertising, the subscription, the product development, uh, the finance, things like that. So I run the the business side of Malaysia Kini to make sure Malaysia Kini is um, sustainable from a financial point of view. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, uh, Primesh. So when, when you started the company in 1999, it was from a small office and a staff of only six people. So now Malaysia Kini is like a, a huge company. It's a behemoth company with millions of readers per month. So, but before we you know, dive in more details about your work at Malaysia Kini, I would like to understand more about your background. Like how did you get from where you are to where you are right now? So you study physics at University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. How were you as a university student? Um, yeah, you know, like many other young people, sometimes you go to university, you're not sure what you want to do. Uh. Um, so if you say you're doing arts, your parents are not so happy. Uh. You say you're doing <laughs> physics, your parents become very happy. Wow, <laughs> I chose physics because I wasn't sure what to do, but um, I like science and, 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 uh, and physics. So that's why uh. I chose physics. Uh, but I think I spend more time outside the classroom doing other activities um, as opposed to just being in the, in the classroom. I see. So were you an active student as in like, were you always do some journalist work outside activities? Yeah, I, I got involved with a student organization uh, mm. called uh, NOSCAR, the Network of OC Students uh, Collectives in Australia. Mm. Uh, and it had other people, for example, like, like Tian Chua, who's now a, a politician uh, and other, you know, um, not just Malaysians, but people from all over the world. Uh, mm. And the idea was to actually look up, talk about democracy social justice, you know, uh, the plight of what was going on. So back in the 80s, um, students in, in all over Asia were uh, pretty much at the forefront um, fighting for democracy, you know, against Suharto in Indonesia, against Marcos in, uh, in the Philippines. Uh, we had the Tiananmen Square massacre in, in China. You had the um, student movement fighting for independence in East Timor, uh, uh, against the military regime in Thailand. So really students all over Asia were, were battling for uh, basic democracy. And, uh, you know, that filtered into um, us studying in Australia and we we're very much part of that vibrant student movement working towards uh, democracy. Can you say that this somehow influenced you that you decide to change you know, after you graduated? Uh, in 1982, your first career was a journalist at Sun Media Group. So you decide 
you like why 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 you decide from from a physics graduate student to a, a career as a journalist at some media group how did that yeah, happen well, you know, <laughs> if you have a career in physics in malaysia you don't really do so well <laughs> we don't have we don't have major physics uh, labs uh, you know here in malaysia uh, but i was really much more involved in in like student politics and you know um those sort of things so that's why i gravitated towards um you know writing i did some writing in australia uh, and i was pretty okay uh, good with writing uh, and at the time the sun newspaper was newly launched and they were trying to put themselves forward as an alternative uh, english newspaper to uh, the star and the new straight times so uh, me and a few friends um joined the sun uh, as as a, as an avenue to write about stories in a more fair balanced accurate manner and you know, tell the stories of what's going on in in Malaysia. Mm. Did your parents do not like when you decided to become a journalist since you graduate from since you graduate uh, as a you know science background do you have well, not so much about uh, maybe becoming a journalist but actually my par- parents migrated to Australia that's why I went to study oh. in Australia. So they were not so happy that I decided to um, give up my permanent residency in Australia and come back to Malaysia so they would have preferred that I stayed on in Australia so uh, they were a bit they would be disappointed that I decided to come back right uh, interesting interesting so um so you started working at a Sun Media Group in 1994 and then you applied to do your masters in international studies at University of Sydney and then you got in uh, but you were still working at Sun Media Group at the time, right? As a as a writer, how did you manage your sort of your time while still working? Also, you know, as a student. No, I actually um, I I left um, the Sun. Um, mm. I was in the Sun from ninety four uh, to I think um, mid ninety five or something uh, for mm. about a couple of years at the Sun, and then I left to um, uh, do my degree in um, in uh, in in Australia. Yeah, I see. So after you graduated with a, with a master's degree from University of Sydney in 1970, you went to work at the Malaysian Trades Union Congress as a research officer. How did that happen? I think I graduated in probably in 96, I think. I might need 96. to check. But anyway, yeah. Um, so when I came back, I decided to try to work with the uh, trade unions uh, mm. to look at labor issue, labor economics, uh, those sort of ideas. Um, I had already done some work in uh, my master's degree was uh, it's called a master's in international studies, but I also did a lot of international political economy. So mm-hmm. I was using my economic skills to analyze the um, situation of labor um, in in Malaysia. I see. Um, I would just like to understand, like how you know you you seem very passionate. Like how can you sort of uh, think that? you know stay staying in malaysia it's so much better than staying in australia because i think a lot of malaysians want to go to australia want to stay there want to get up from this country like how, what what makes you sort of like i want to work in malaysia and then after i graduate masters and i am straight we go to malaysian trade unions like what what what's your thought at the time Uh, well, you know, Malaysia is my home. I'm born and bred in in Malaysia. I was born in Petaling Jaya, PJ. So, um, you know, it's it's a familiar. It's it's where I've grown grown up. Uh, lots of friends, lots of people that I know. So, um, even though my parents migrated to Australia, I still considered Malaysia my home. And you know, um, I believe you know most people these days that you can actually work 
uh, anywhere you choose if you you know if you if you choose so i decided to say well why don't i give malaysia a shot um you know after all i feel very comfortable here in malaysia uh, australia has got good opportunities as well um but you know in any country it's hard work it's yeah. not a, to say a easy or a walk in a park in a country you know so you you got to work hard wherever you are right So you started Malaysia Kini in 1999 with your partner Stephen Gunn as an editor. So when I I in this part questions I would like to understand your thought process. So when when did you think that starting a media company is a good idea? Like and I want to understand like how sort of when you think that okay I want to start media company. What did you do at the first things? Uh did you like sort of okay I want to quit my job and then straight away start this company or or i want to do this as a side project first and see how it goes like when did you start to think that i want to do media company and how do you react to it yeah i think you know it was more around the late uh, 1998 uh, um that's when anwar ibrahim was sacked as deputy prime minister and you had the reformasi movement uh, growing uh, and at the time you could clearly see how the media was tilted uh, against uh, anwar ibrahim and you know there were a lot of um, injustices and and uh, you know and the media wasn't really covering it very accurately um so having just come back from australia you could really see how the internet had a great potential um to to change how people receive the information as well as um you know prime minister mahathe uh, had uh, pledged not to censor the internet under the communications and multimedia act mm-hmm. so that created a duality between uh, you know print and broadcast media which was mm-hmm. heavily controlled by the government uh, and the internet media which the government at least said they would not be censoring so that created kind of like an opportunity so when uh, when the whole reform act thing happened mm-hmm. uh, i reached out to seven and said look why don't we you know start an online media so it took us nearly a year to get it going Um, our first attempt, we actually bought out a cyber cafe and tried to run Malaysia Kini from a cyber cafe. Uh, those days, computers was, were very expensive, mm-hmm. uh, and internet connection was very, very expensive and very hard to get. So these mm-hmm. were the very early days of internet, where you use things like dial-up modems and very old computers. Oh. Um, so you know, um, it's a very, you know, very early days of the web. So um, so we had to think very creatively of how would we run an online website. um so uh, you know this is before social media the main way people spread uh, information was using email um so you know this was this was very early days of the internet so it took us nearly a year to um try to raise the funds try to figure out how to do it, it took me two months just to register the name uh, mm-hmm. malaysiakini.com because you know nobody knew how to register a domain name uh, those days uh, right. you couldn't use a credit card you couldn't use a credit card to actually buy pay for anything online uh, those days because malaysian credit cards were not recognized so a lot of things that we take for granted these days like buying things online uh, yeah. did not exist uh, back in uh, 98 99 um so uh, it took us a long time to get going so it took us about a year before we launched in the end of 1999 mm i see so what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced the first two years um, after launching uh, malaysia kini i think you know when you start up a startup the first big problem is actually to actually how do you get people on board right because nobody really wants to trust a small company uh, what more company which uh, you know is talking about doing independent journalism which can be risky in our political environment so to actually get people on board and and hire staff uh, and train the staff was the most difficult thing to do mm. um, you know 
it's not as if we're going to pay big bucks and you know, lots of money. Um, you know, a lot of people come to our office and look at the office and say, well, it's a very small office, six people. Why would I want to join, you know, a startup? So that's the biggest challenge actually, is to actually attract people uh, and, and attract enough funding so that we can get going. Um, so so it, it, it took us a big challenge, uh, but we've managed to actually get a few people to join us and that's how we got going. And I think the first two years is... Um, you know, when you're small, you got to do everything, right? You, you don't have a, you got to do the counts, you got to, you know, write everything, you got to every single thing under the sun, uh, you got to get, you got to do it for yourself. Um, and I think that's the biggest challenge and to gain traction and, and really get people used to this idea that you can do independent. Uh, so in those days, I remember when we, when we call up and say we're from Malaysia Kidney, she said, oh, Malaysia Kidney, you know, they don't even understand the word Malaysia Kidney, right? So it was a big challenge. So it took, took a long time to get going, which I think if you're any startup, you'll have the same problem. I see. Have you ever doubted during these periods that, you, you know, you might going to fail, um, you know, and how sort of, do you have any doubt during this period? And do you, how do you sort of handle this self-doubt to not consume you? I think there's always doubt. I think there's always a big question mark about whether you can succeed, how long you can go, because you kind of see a problem ahead, right? You know, you go, I'm going to run out of money in a few months. Or no, 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 advertising is difficult. This is difficult. And you don't have a solution. You know, something's going to happen and you don't have a, you don't have a ready-made solution. So you got to keep thinking and keep trying something to see what, what works. Um, so we invested a lot of time in building friends and alliances, building supporters, people who would say, okay, look, you know, I'll support what, what you're doing. But people are not going to support what you're doing until you do it. So you can't expect supporters to come from it's a bit of a chicken and egg, right? So every day you got to work hard and produce something. And every day you got to go to us and try and get more and more support in, 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 in different ways. Um, so it's a bit of a challenge. So we ended up the first year with like 18 people, but it was still very tough going. Um, so you kind of always face this problem, um, but we did make some good connections. And then in 2002, we managed to close our first round of investment and then we launched our subscription system. So, you know, then, you know, we became uh, it, uh, a little bit better. We only got a thousand subscribers in our first year. So even that mm -hmm. was very difficult because a lot of people refused to pay for content. Um, right. but it took a long while before we could actually uh, get going. I see. Um, you know, like getting hundred thousand radius per day within um, uh, within eight months, uh, starting the company, it's extremely difficult. Do you know, like, um, how how did you do differently than your competitors at that time? I think the key thing was that at the time we had really no competitors, right? Because uh, unlike today, where there's so many sources of news, yeah. um, in those days there was really nobody writing uh, independent news and trying to be an online uh, uh, media. So um, it, was also, it was also the heat of the moment because of reformacy, because of, uh, because of Anwar Ibrahim's trial, you know, many things were going on that people quickly said, hey, here's a good source of news. Um, and when you're doing it daily, you quickly develop, you know, readers who want to come and read you every day. So um, like I said, it was just mainly through email, through word of mouth that people found out about us and then they started to visit um, Malaysia Kidney. Interesting. Um Malaysia Kidney launched subscription systems, uh, like you said, in 2002. However, only 1% of readers subscribe to Malaysia Kidney. How do you able to sustain financially during this period, considering only a small number of readers subscribe to the news? Well, we had to do, you know, many things. We had to run conferences, publish books, provide, you know, trainings. You know, you kind of find whichever way to kind of supplement your income. 
So, uh, you know, we, we really try to make income in 10 different ways mm-hmm. uh, in, order, in order to make uh, ends meet. Interesting. So in 2009, 8% of the readers subscribed to Malaysia Kini from one of the videos that I watched. Um, and however, you would like to achieve 10% at least of the total readers, right? So how many readers subscribe to Malaysia Kini now? Well, we normally don't disclose the number. Oh, okay, right. uh, also because our relationship keeps fluctuating so it's not ah, really like a, a definite but what we are trying to say is that uh, for a media to be sustainable mm. if you can get about 10% of your readers to subscribe that should be sufficient uh, to to achieve a, a break-even point all right so Malaysia Kini was upheld as the only independent news outlet in Malaysia so over the years you have won many awards for being independent news uh, however, some people criticize that Malaysia Kini is backed by Pakataharapan or Pakataharapan supporter. So what do you have to say to these critics and how do you ensure that, that Malaysia Kini maintains its independence and its integrity status? Yeah, I think, we, you know, to, to say that we are backed by one faction or the other, like the readers, um, that's really, it's, it's up to an audience, right? Which audience, you know, wants to read, uh, read you. Our benchmark is not so much uh, who our audience is, but what's our quality of our stories? Is it independent? Mm-hmm. Is it fair? Is it balanced? You know, do we do our best uh, in terms of reporting the news? And, you know, we, you know, uh, we, we also reported uh, very fairly and accurately um, on the Penang government and Slango government, which has, you know, been in Pakatan Harapan's uh, control for a very long time. Mm-hmm. If you ask people like, you know, Guane, who's the chief minister of, uh, of Penang, if you ask uh, Khalid Ibrahim and others, you know, they all uh, they all felt that we we asked them a lot of tough questions. Mm. Uh, even for example, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, a lot of tough questions asked about the current Selangor government wanting to degazette the Kuala Langat forest, uh, and a lot of you know harsh questions being asked about that. So we we continue to be very um, you know vigilant and and reporting uh, uh, whoever is in government. Uh, even when Pakatan Harapan was in government uh, after 2018, there were many issues that Nishikini highlighted. You know, they backtracked on Linas and many other manifesto promises. Um, so we've always been, you know, very fair and accurate about reporting, regardless of who's in, in government. I see. So Malaysia Kini had many controversies and lawsuits over the years. Um, and in two decades since you started the company, Malaysia Kini has faced court battles, police raids, protests outside its office by pro-government demonstrators, and red paint splattered at its office. And even your journalists have also faced death threats. And in one interview, you mentioned that I think there was uh, there was never a situation where we were not under threat. It was just. Um, are we going to get arrested tomorrow or are we going to get arrested in, in six months? Do you have any concern of what the government might do to you or your company or your employees? And does it have any influence in your decision-making as a CEO? Uh, I think we, 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 there's always that danger. Um, we can't run away from the fact that, you know, when you're doing independent reporting, there could be a harsh treatment um, so that's something uh, that we have to have to live with. I think does it affect the company uh, to a certain extent? Right? We have to be careful because we do not know what's around the corner. Uh, we cannot overextend ourselves. Mm, so, I mean, but that happens with other types of risks. Look at the pandemic. Many, many people were not prepared for the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we many people had to, like other media companies had to retrench the staff and scale down uh, so, yeah. you know, our many competitors lost, um, you know, they did VSS and 
scale down operation. But because we've always been very uh, resilient in our operations, we did not cut down our staff. You know, we actually have been, you know, this year we are, again, we are growing. So we're able to, um, we're able to manage through very difficult periods. So I think that's one thing about Malaysia Kini. We, we are always prepared to manage uh, challenges that, that may come our way. I see. How do you sort of um, handle this? Um, I think when it comes to challenge, a lot of challenge, I think that's also associ- associated with um, stressness or anxious. How do you handle this? I think, I think you know, generally, we, we, all of us should be uh, prepared for stress and challenges. It can come in many different forms of, you know, uh, in life, right? So it's not something that, that uh, I mean, at the individual level, we need to have coping mechanisms, way to build, um, really be resilient. Uh, and there are many ways of doing that, many books written about how to do that. Um, but as an organization, uh, we are clear in terms of, you know, making sure we have enough, enough, enough finance, making sure we have people who uh, are resilient, um, you know, they will not get scared and nervous at the first sign of, of trouble. Um, and we're really clear about the risks. So when people join Malaysia Kini, we do talk to them about the risks associated with working in Malaysia Kini. So they're not, in many ways, not taken by surprise. Oh, you know, police are here. Oh, my God. Um, so, so they understand that um, this is something part and parcel of the work we do. There's nothing to be fearful about. Um, we have been able to overcome past uh, you know, uh, uh, adversities and we will do so again. So um, over time, they become quite acclimatized to this sort of work environment uh, and they get stronger by, by the day. I see. All right, um, let's talk more about the future of the media company. So you mentioned many times about um, advertising now has been given away to many non-media companies such as Google, YouTube, etc. It is therefore difficult for media company to rely revenue purely on advertising. And that's why subscription system is one of the things that you do um, to help generate income for the, for the company. With all these threats with technology and probably in the future, there are more threats uh, and different platforms to write a story like Medium, etc., and the image of new independence media, how do you ensure that Malaysia Kini remains relevant, remains profitable in the future? It is, it is challenging and we feel that the, you know, the, the media landscape will keep changing. Um, but at the end of the day, we feel that at the core of, of journalism is about storytelling and about being independent, providing insights. Um, and that doesn't change, right? That that the way you do it, whether it's in print, whether it's on radio, broadcast, you know, you may it, it may change, but the core um, uh, profession of journalism being accurate, being balanced, being quick to tell the news, these things don't don't change. So we feel that as long as we continue to invest in these uh, these crafts and the way of doing this, um, you know, we have a strong brand and we have a strong audience um, that will continue. It, they, you know, among younger people, you know, there's a, there's a changing type of media consumption. A lot of younger people are on Instagram, you know, watching video, watching Netflix. Um, so it is a challenge to keep on reinventing ourselves for all the, for the future ge- generations. But we think, you know, uh, uh, we think it's okay that as, we, as things change, there'll be younger, younger people in Malaysia Kini coming along and that will also allow Malaysia Kini to reinvent itself. So as long as we stay, stay focused on what we do best, um, we believe we'll be able to continue for, for quite a while. I see. Okay. So Malaysia Kini has been um, 
in, in the media industry for over 20 years now. So the company have evolved drastically since you and your partner started the company. So um, Malaysia Kini has four different languages and you have ventured on YouTube platform with Kini TV and you provide many other services as well. What else will Malaysia Kini do differently in the future to remain competitive in this industry? Do you sort of ever think that you might be venture in the business news like The Age or Sport News? Or do you ever think of covering more di- in different countries like Southeast Asia? Yeah, I, we, we, we really haven't, um, you know, this year has been all about, uh, last year is about managing, managing the pandemic, right? right. So uh, we've been focused on staying afloat, uh, reinventing, right. doubling down on our subscription. Um, so I think for the immediate term, it's really about these sort of improvements. I think in the long term, we can definitely use our skill sets to build other types of websites in other countries or, or, or other languages, etc. But I think that will come a little bit further on. Mm, you know, we may add a bit of content to our website here and there. So those are incremental changes. Um, but we, we need to, we will see what we will do next uh, in terms of, you know, a big step. I see. So uh, media companies in Malaysia and specific journalism are having a tougher time to provide an independent view due to government intervention and with all sorts of regulations. Do you think that this will change in the future? How do you view these things, this issue, in, in what's happening right now in Malaysia? In terms of how the government sees the media? Um, yeah, like how, how do, you, do you think that um, um, this freedom of speech would change in the future? I think it's always the difficult to maintain freedom of speech. I think you know uh, when you are powerful, when you are running government, and you have all the government resources uh, with you, you have the police, you know you have a lot of power. Um, you don't take criticism lightly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's always a hesitance, uh, 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 a way of trying to silence um, opposite points of view. Uh, look at what is happening with Tommy Thomas's book. Yep. Um, you know, so you you the, it's okay to disagree and and argue and say, look, that person is wrong. But you then take the next step to say, look, okay, we should, should we ban the book or should we arrest the person or should we charge the person? I think that's very different. I think uh, having agreement and disagreements are very healthy, mm-hmm. providing different points of view and having a debate about different points of view. That's actually healthy. Um, it's a plural media. Um, so, you know, with a lot of other media out there, which, you know, we don't, may not give the same perspective as Malaysia Kini, but we are fine with that because that's a healthy environment. Right? You need to have different perspectives out there. Uh, you know, we, we, we've got nothing against our competitors. Um, but the question is that uh, how can governments of the day change to become more tolerant of the media um, and, and uh, you know, less likely to control, to buy out, um, for example, recently there was this, um, the owner of uh, Sina was complaining that, you know, there was a pressure on advertising saying, if you don't tow a certain line, we will pull advertising out, out from you. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you stop that impulse to demand uh, a docile media, to demand an obedient media? Uh, and I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, and it's not just in the government. I mean, even if you're uh, any position of authority, if you're a teacher, if you're a headmaster, you tend to demand uh, people to be obedient. Um, so, so demanding obedience is uh, is an impulse of power of authority. And how do you withdraw that 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 impulse and allow for genuine freedom of expression? Allow for the genuine dissent. 
um, is, is the biggest challenge that we have. So it's really a mind shift change to say that, you know, being, a, being, a being an authority, being someone who's powerful, does not mean that you have to demand obedience and, 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 and make everybody uh, 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 subservient to you. Mm, I see. So since um, everyone can write a blog on, on med media platforms, how do you see journalism role in the future? Because, you know, journalism, it's sort of a, a very expensive work as far as I know, because it requires manpower. It's not just like a normal writing, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, people write a blog and then assume that they are journalists. So how, how do you see journalism role in the future? It is definitely challenging because, you know, not anybody can write and produce content, right? So you've got people who are, are really great writers and they do a great job in their blogs. You know, there are some great individual blogs out there. They've got people who are mediocre and, you know, perhaps don't write so well. Uh, and you've got people who actually use their blogs for misinformation, right? Um, they may write really well, but they're actually doing it, you know, for the wrong reasons, right? In order to mislead or propagate a certain perspective. Um, you know, which is not factually accurate. Uh, we've seen a lot of, lot of that. So um, uh, really we have to figure out how, you know, media can actually play a role to, uh, to be above that and actually provide fair and accurate information. If people, you know, over time uh, believe information which is not true um, and they rather believe an influencer you know, it could be someone who's an authority figure in their lives. It could be a religious figure in their lives. Um, it's very dangerous when people are not, not trained to look at the facts, you know, uh, uh, to actually to, to, um, to have a certain, even scrutiny of the media, right? Is the media reporting accurately, fairly? Is information being provided f accurate and fair? So I think it's a job of, you know, journalism and journalists to be kind of be really good so that people can separate this. Um, but it is a challenge. I would say it's um, it's an easy challenge. It is something that media organizations like Malaysia Kini will have to live with, um, you know, for, for time to come. I see. Um, I read this article about artificial intelligence. So with the rise of artificial intelligence, do you ever think that writer role will be replaced as some articles might have suggested? I think I think we well we've seen artificial intelligence uh, now play a big role in um, what they call distribution of suggestions of articles or recommending articles, right? So Facebook, depending on what you do, Facebook highlights certain articles for you, or YouTube will you know recommend content for you based on your on um, uh, your viewing habits. Uh, I'm sure Spotify does the same. Netflix also does the same. They recommend yeah. you know movies to you. So AI is already in the area of. Uh, trying to figure out what you would like to consume. Um, definitely AI will definitely be used to uh, write content. Um, you know, um, I, I see it happening already in certain ways and I think that's going to grow. Um, so I think that, 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 that AI will be able to not only um, distribute content, or, uh, but they will also get involved in the process of uh, content creation. Um, it, it may not be absolutely creation, but for example, you know, if, for example, today you're doing this podcast, right? And you're putting this podcast out there, you know, in five years time, when, uh, when someone wants to tell us, you know, a Malaysian Guinea story, the, an AI could grab, you know, particular parts of this interview uh, mm -hmm. and meld it with other parts of other stories that has written about Malaysia Kini and create something new, right? Or for example, if an AI is writing about media sustainability, it could write about, you know, the Guardian, New York Times, and also take a bit of this interview 
uh, and put it together and say that this is a topic about media sustainability. So, uh, um, you know, so content out there can be sliced and diced and put together, um, you know, through an AI. So just like how um, an AI would look over a million YouTube videos and decide that here are five videos for you, uh, an AI could say, well, you know, if I want to read about media sustainability, you know, these are six different interviews that go together well that tells a story about media sustainability. Um, so so it, it may not be so much about AI creating original content, but working with what content out there and putting things together in such a way. Um, and that this challenge the job of, of a journalist because a journalist is also a storyteller okay. a journalist also will look for different sources of information gather the information verify it and and put it together so um i think that you know as ai enters more and more parts of our life definitely the job of a journalist uh, or storytellers would also have an impact um you know so um it is something that again it's kind of on the horizon In the next 10 15 years we'll see a bigger role of of ai I see. Uh, do do Malaysia Kini actually invest in AI now? No, we don't. No. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, um, but AI is very yeah. expensive. So, you know, for example, uh, it's actually very not so easy to do, develop AI. But what will really happen is that uh, the other tools, other people will create little AI tools, and then we'll be able to use those tools as a service. Uh, rather than actually developing our own tool. This is how people use uh, Facebook and, 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 you know, you use other tools to, to like Photoshop, right? You don't invent your own program, but you use Photoshop to do something. So AI will also become like a service uh, of which people utilize uh, rather than actually like, you know, writing our own code um, to, uh, to develop. So what are some uh, of the most important skills that young generations should have before they embark in their career journey, regardless of their profession choice? Well, I, I also have kids. Um, you know, my oldest kid is 25. My youngest is uh, 16. So they're all kids. I think one is really to be, uh, figure out a way to be resilient, right? Uh, emotionally resilient. You know, you, you, you have to be able to stay the course. Um, and I find that young people tend to, you know, uh, lack focus, uh, lack the ability to pursue something um, over long periods of time. Um, so for example, you're doing pod- podcasting, um, you know, will you be able to do podcasting for the next two years or, you know, on a consistent basis, right? So that, that's a challenge. Yeah. Um, so I think to have resilience, have focus, um, to be able to, um, to, to be able to move away from trying to get very quick benefits. I think I see a lot of, it's kind of like the, the, the you know, the kind of the social media type of behavior. You post something out, you want to get the likes in, right? And then that yeah. reinforces the behavior. But to be able to postpone that sense of immediate gratification, um, these, I think, are very important things. So I think if you are able to have a focus, uh, postpone immediate gratification, have resilience, focus on what you want to do um, and work hard at it, I think you'll be able to uh, become better than your peers and then that, that will lead to success. So, you know, the, the million of you out there, you want to be in the top 1% one, one to 5%. Yeah. And I think this, this type of um, behaviors and characters will, will, will lift you from, um, from, the, from the others. I see. Uh, so for people who would like to start a media company, what advice would you give to them? And also for anyone who actually would like to embark in, in, on this entrepreneurial journey like you yourself have done. So what advice would you give to them? Well, you know, you, you don't have to become an entrepreneur or too fast. 
you know, it's kind of like, like having a, a baby, right? You don't want to have a baby when you're 18 or 19. Right. You want to have a baby when you're maybe you're 30 or 35 and you're ready for a baby because it's a responsibility, right? So you, you may want to dabble and do certain things, but it may not be a, the career option that you want straight away. But I know a lot of young people don't want to work for someone else. They want the freedom, you know, they want to be able to do what they want. So for them, entrepreneurship is not so much a career choice. Entrepreneurship becomes a lifestyle choice. You know, I want right. my freedom. Therefore, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to right. be the, part of the gig economy. But that's a lifestyle choice. It's not a career choice. So uh, we need to differentiate that. Um, so you need to decide, are you, you know, are you, do you want to do that lifestyle choice or do you want to develop a career? Um, and that, and often that's two different things. Um, so, um, so, you know, I, I, I do a lot of coaching of startups. I, I, I work with a lot of startups uh, through the Cradle Fund, uh, Coach and Grow program, et cetera. But uh, I think that, that um, it is good to be the entrepreneur for the right reasons. But also, you must you don't become an entrepreneur for the wrong wrong reasons, right? Right. So um, you know, I started Mejikini, you know, when I was late twenties. But by that time, I had actually done a lot of things, uh, you know, before I was I became an entrepreneur. So you know, and all the things I did beforehand really helped me understand what I was getting into. I see. How how do you define a leadership role? Uh, because um, you know. Uh, you started Malaysia Kini and then Malaysia Kini has, you know, it's become a gigantic company. So there must be, you know, some leadership that you have that makes Malaysia Kini becomes where it is right now. What, how do you define the leadership role? What makes a leader thick? Uh, leader thick? I think that they, you know, you, um, Malaysia Kini was successful not just because of me, right? It's not every big contributed to it. Mm. So, um, you know, I think the brand name Malaysia Kini is much more well-known than myself or Stephen or, or anybody else. So we always project the brand name. Um, I think in my experience, I, I do believe in, in complementary leadership, meaning that, um, you know, one person alone may not bring everything to the table. So um, Stephen, my partner has different leadership skills and we've complement each other. We don't, we're not the same. He has, you know, has, he has his, his role and his different style of leading, very good way of leading. And I have my own style of, of leading. Um, and I've found that, uh, you know, in most successful startups, there are actually two or three people who can lead and maybe lead a little bit differently, but they are willing to compromise with each other. They're not uh, prima donnas, you know, like, oh, my way is the only way type of attitude. So I think there is there is there is leadership, but also this idea of being complementary type of leadership, meaning that you work with others who are also leaders, and that builds a lot more resilience in the company rather than you know the sole idea of of leadership. So leadership should not be seen as um, a solo effort. You know, it's me, it's my leadership, my mm. style. No, you you know, leadership is all, is almost um, a form of guidance, uh, but. You know, you, you, it, takes a, it takes a teamwork to actually for that to succeed. Uh, you know, not just one, you know, one. I think there's a difference between leadership and kind of like a hero, you know, heroism, right? Or <laughs> superhero, you know, I, 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 I think that you need a cohesive team. Uh, and, and a good leader is able to build a team. Um, and, and in building that team, um, they don't, the leader doesn't have to be right all the time doesn't have to be the authority figure all the time, doesn't have to command all the time, 
but is able to guide the team so that the team plays and succeeds, um, not just the leader. I see. Um, I saw a lot of books behind you. Um, so since we already reaching to our end session, and I do love to read, is there any books that you would recommend for me or any of the listeners here to read? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 mean, I like I like reading a lot of books, and you know, I read about economics and politics and different things. I can't I can't tell uh, a single book, <laughs> right? But I think to be to be open and and you know read things that um, help you understand things that you may not already understand. Um, so for example, there was one book, um, uh, I, I had my own idea of, you know, of, of, of working uh, and I work with teams. And then I read this book called Quiet. It was about introverts mm-hmm. um, and how introverts work. And suddenly I understood that, hey, there's so many different types of people in this world. I can't expect everybody to work like me or behave like me. And suddenly I got interested in, in different different types of people and how do they think and why do they think that way and how do they work? So then it became me more in tune to these different types of characters and that helped me grow. So I think it's very important to read things that perhaps you don't really understand or you don't really are aware about, but you inform yourself. And you say, hey, this is whole world out there, which you know I didn't experience personally uh, you know, uh, in the things that I did, the way I interact, but through a book, it brings you a perspective that you perhaps would not have seen uh, otherwise. So always use a book to go kind of beyond yourself personally into a world which perhaps doesn't quite exist for your personal experience. And that enriches you. It's like watching you know, um, a sci-fi movie or something else, right? You're bringing in that experience and that makes you a better person. So nice. I think uh, you know, the whole idea is to choose books that really add that value rather than just reflect the way you currently think or your current experience. I see. All right. Thank you so much, Primesh, for doing this podcast. Um, no problem. My privilege to be able to talk with you about these things. For anyone who's listening to this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Amran underscore. And you can also obviously follow this podcast on Spotify. And you can subscribe to, for free, subscribe to my writing, which is Shami Amran, S-Y-H-M-I-A-M-R-A-N dot substack.com where I write everything um, I can, everything that I'm think of at a time. So yeah, and okay, thank you so much uh, and bye-bye.